To the Beads Ortho podcast. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. It is January 2023, and I'm here with two of my co-hosts, Josh Holt from the University of Iowa, and this is Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt. Uh, we've got a really exciting episode. I, I don't know the last time I was so excited about an episode. We got a lot of good stuff to talk about. Uh, we have got two guests with us, uh, both with some chop ties. Dr. Jack Flynn, who doesn't need any introduction, and is the chair up there in Philly. And Dr. Alex Gornitsky, a recent CHOP fellow, who is the lead author on the uh, the main paper we're going to discuss and is a new faculty member at University of Michigan. So thank you guys for joining us. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. As usual, I'll say thanks to our sponsor. This month it is InView Medical, and we'll hear more from them later in the episode. As always, their sponsorship supports POSNA, not the podcast, so it won't affect our conversation. And uh, that advertisement was recorded live at iPod, so please excuse the drastic change in background noise that's going to start when we switch over to that conversation. So with no further ado, let's uh, let's get to know the guests a little bit. Alex, you were at CHOP last year. I would love to hear a little bit about sort of what are your fondest sort of memories or the favorite parts of training in Philly and or at shop. Yeah. So for me, kind of the best memories I think are are really all about the people. I did med school there and I did a research year there. So the opportunity to go back, train clinically with some of the people who got me interested in orthopedics way back when as a med student, Woody, Dr. Flynn, you know, mentors who had been really foundational for me. I think that was really special. Um, they're really like a fellow first program. I was really amazed that they kind of treated us like colleagues and family. I think, you know, day two, I remember I was, I was doing a big Semmel's case with Dr. Spiegel. I was really excited. I was a fresh fellow. And I remember Keith was kind of in the room next door doing some little cases, some hard removals. And he kind of just popped in and out throughout the day just to open and close wounds for us, just so that we could, you know, so that I could get more reps in and not have to open and close wounds. So, you know, I think things like that continued throughout the whole year, but they're just such a fantastic group of faculty. And then, I think the second part of it for me is just my co-fellows. We had our own office off kind of on the other side of the building. So it was a lot of fun to just come in in the mornings, kind of shoot the breeze, share cases, look at x-rays, talk about people. And then we'd kind of sometimes be able to go and do big cases together. So we did Semmel's cases together, hip reconstructions and trauma. So for me, it's really, I think, all about the people. It just kind of gave you a feeling like you were at home and that you belong. So it made for a great year. Man, I wish I could. I wish I could say that my co-fellows are a bunch of clowns. <laughs> yeah, you might get stuck with those guys for years collaborating. Be careful. <laughs> well, it all starts from the top uh, with setting that tone. So, your chief of service here, Dr. Flynn. You have been on interview with the PD Pod with Nick Fletcher. It was a great episode. If anyone hasn't listened to it, um, and uh, I think we all learned a lot about you and your philosophies. Then, I'd love to hear what are you most excited about in your career right now? Right now. I can't get around the fact how excited I am about CHOP Orthopedics right now. I've been here since 1996, and we are in the strongest place we've ever been by far since I came. I was I was the third full-time surgeon at CHOP when I came in 96. I took over eight years ago in the midst of a crisis, which I think a lot of people know about. It was a really tough moment. And when I assessed the situation, it was clear we needed to grow and we needed to have a bunch of really young strong talent, young thought leaders brought in. And that's tough. That's tough on mid-career faculty, honestly. And I hired eight surgeons over an eight-year period. And in our model, there's no hospital support when you hire surgeons. There's no university support. It's the other faculty members who basically are are supporting that. And it makes for kind of lean times. And we went through some tough times for several years. And then, of course, we hit the pandemic. I had just hired two new sports surgeons, Brendan Williams and Kathleen McGuire, in 2019. And in 2020, their practice dies in the sports, you know, all the schools shut down. So it was tough. But now we come out on the other end and every one of these eight people, their practices are booming on all fronts. We're just stronger clinically research, financial and culture. Um, Alex alluded it to it, but probably the one shortfall when I took over was 
the culture wasn't where we wanted to be. And I really wanted to make a family kind of culture and focus on this autonomy, mastery, and purpose stuff, which our faculty is kind of sick hearing from me about. But that's really been our focus. And I've been looking for ways to increase each of those autonomy, mastery, and purpose all the way through. And it's made Chop Ortho just a much more fun, happy home for our faculty, fellows, and staff. So it's been a long, painful uphill battle, but we're kind of there. Almost makes you want to kind of quit and say, done, <laughs> nothing can go wrong now. <laughs> Good luck, go get them. But uh, it is, it's a really, really fun time to be here. Amazing to imagine CHOP with three surgeons. Yeah, we have 20 now. So with that, let's jump right in. I know we're a little short on time and uh, we got a lot to cover. So first up, our main event of the night is this article by both of you guys together. JPO coming out in the print version next month. Why don't adolescents wear their brace? A prospective study investigating psychosocial characteristics that predict scoliosis brace wear. Alex, can you tell us a little bit about sort of the impetus behind this study? Yeah, so that's a great question. I actually kind of thought of this idea back in med school. Uh, so during my research here at CHOP, I think I, I was in Dr. Flynn's clinic. We had you know just seen a patient, prescribed her a brace. And I remember coming back to the team room and kind of hearing some of the staff just chatting and kind of commenting that they thought that she'd be a great brace user. And it, it got me really thinking like, well, wouldn't it be great if there was some sort of evidence-based way to predict that answer? Because it kind of seemed to me like it's, you know, a lot of gossip and kind of just surmising. And so at the time, the brace study had just come out. So we, we really knew how important time in brace was. Uh, Temperature-sensitive monitors were kind of still a relatively new thing. And so I kind of just thought that it'd be a good idea to look into that a little bit more, wrote out and designed a study and proposed it to Dr. Flynn. And that's kind of what got the ball rolling for us. And I understand you may have some uh, extra backup at home in this field. Can you tell us about uh, any special connections that may have helped with the study? Yeah. So there was this really great study out of TSRH that we had kind of started with. And they had developed a survey that they called the Brace Belief Questionnaire. And it showed that physicians were totally inaccurate when we predicted who wore their braces. Huh. And that it also kind of tried to get at this question of, can we predict brace use? But when I looked into it more, I kind of noticed that the majority of their patients kind of scored above the threshold where the score is predictive. And so it wasn't really helpful for them. My idea was to kind of layer on top a really extensive series of psychosocial questionnaires, both for the parents and the kids to try to basically augment that and kind of increase its accuracy. And, you know, I, admittedly, as an orthopedist or a budding orthopedist, it's tough digging in the psychological literature, trying to find kind of validated measures that work with kids and adults. And so I was fortunate. My wife at the time was getting her PhD for psychology, and then her friend was also getting a PhD for adolescent uh, and child psychology. And so mostly my wife and then also her friend kind of helped me pick out some measures and made sure I was using some right ones. That was a pretty good resource that fortunately jump-started this and got us going a little bit. Yeah, and it's fortuitous, but it's also just the perfect kind of interdisciplinary thinking and expertise that I think we need in so many areas in orthopedics. So let's cut to the chase. What, in your mind, are the big takeaways that should be affecting practice? Yeah, and so we looked at psychosocial factors across kind of six main domains, looked at brace-specific attitudes. We looked at things like self-esteem, uh, social relationships, school performance, and then we used all of that and we kind of combined it into what we call the Brace Fidelity Follow-Up Scale or this 12-item scale that basically combined kind of the most predictive elements within those larger, you know, 240, 250 questions. And we were able to show that the score on that Brace Fidelity Follow-Up Scale was predictive of future brace wear. And so that was definitely pretty exciting. And I, you know, I don't think that this will be the final version of the BFF scale. We only you know, had 30 or 40 patients in the final model. So I do think it needs to be validated in some wider and, and more diverse patient populations. But I think it's a great step. And kind of the thing that I really took away from this is I think it really kind of starts the conversation in terms of trying to understand how psychosocial factors kind of affect the patients, you know, allows you to connect with them and empathize with them and try to basically see where they're coming from and then tailor your education and counseling you know, at the end of the day, it's not like we're not going to prescribe a brace because the BFF scale says that they're not going to wear it. I, you know, it's still the best option. It still keeps them out of the operating room. But I think it allows us to kind of have that informative conversation, make, make that connection with them, and then tailor our education to kind of what the families need most. Do you think there's anything that uh, we as spine surgeons can 
recognize in clinic, you know, even short of doing a, a formal survey and uh, either feel good or concerned about our chances with bracing? You know, some of the elements that we found that were predictive, things like low self-esteem, the effect of peer relationships, things like that. I think it'd be a little bit hard to kind of judge in clinic. You can certainly, you know, try to judge the patients, but I think there's a lot of error in that. And certainly you kind of bring a lot of inherent biases when you're kind of trying to do that. Other things are predictive things like parent religiosity, loneliness, again, things that I think would be a little bit hard to judge, but I think it could potentially inform the conversation with parents, because I think a lot of the findings that we had were kind of tied into self-perceptions that kids have and kind of how they fit in with other kids and how the brace may or may not affect that. So I think that could certainly at least play into, you know, the conversation that you have with families. And then the other kind of things kind of tied back to this psychological principle known as locus of control, which is basically this principle that you basically have agency over your, your own life and kind of the decisions and that the outcomes of kind of your life are the result of the decisions and the actions you make. And so it kind of ties into this idea that, you know, families and kids who think and know that the brace is effective and are motivated, you know, through inherent means to avoid surgery and correct their curve are much more likely to kind of be linked up and, and be good brace users. And so if you can kind of recognize that and try to educate families and kind of bring them back to those principles, I think it could potentially be something that kind of changes your conversation and, and influences how you interact with families. And uh, Dr. Flynn, what about you? What did you sort of see changing in your, in your thought process coming out of the study or where do you see things going next? Well, sort of going into this whole topic, um, I will tell you, Alex knows this is one of a few studies that we're doing in this kind of arena right now, made much more powerful by accurate actual brace utility, how much they're using it because of these temperature sensitive monitors. But I was looking at the 50,000 foot view and saying, these braces are expensive. The families have to pay a chunk of it often. Um, they're time consuming. It's a big emotional adventure for the family. Maybe we should be able to know something before we even start in on this. Could we come up with a tool that we can give pediatric orthopedists around the country that they could give to families when you're in the workroom and you see that a kid's curve has crossed from 18 degrees to 27 degrees since they were seen six months ago? Could you give that family a tool and look at it before you even go back in the room and say, okay, what do you think? Okay, but I'm telling you, based on some really good scientific work, we, we can see that there's a great chance your kid is actually going to wear the brace. So this is, you have a great chance for success. And I know this is a tough journey, but, or the opposite, you could say, you know, this is a tough thing. And the second piece of this is our environment right now with tethering. Um, you know, tethering is indicated according to the FDA for a curve bigger than 35 degrees in a growing child who has, quote, failed bracing. That's what the FDA says. What if we had a tool where you could walk in the room and say, there's no chance. You're, you're just the coolest kid in your whole school. You're all over Instagram. There is a 0% chance you're going to wear a brace. Could that be valuable to us? That's one piece of it. And the second piece is exactly as Alex outlined. If you encounter a child who really needs a brace or they're going to get surgery, could we develop teaching skills and education pieces where we could actually turn them into a better bracewear, seeing that we have a real risk in front of us? Uh, so that's the two pieces, both the prediction tool and also something that gear us up for education. I think we need that right now um, with, uh, with how we're using bracing in America with, with the monitor device and everything. Yeah, that sounds like a, uh, a beautiful future that could change a lot of our conversations in clinic for the better. Craig, Josh, you guys have any thoughts? Yeah, I'd be interested, Dr. Flynn, if you, before you did this study, if you were to tell us three or four traits of a good brace wearer, looking at some of the psychosocial characteristics, what would have you said? I would have been completely wrong about the self-esteem. And that's something yeah. Alex and I went back and forth when I saw the data. I I would think that somebody who really feels like they are in charge of the world and they own themselves and they, we got this, they could put on a brace and people could laugh at them and they'd say, yeah, but you know what? I'm the coolest kid in the school. Laugh if you want. I'm going to put this on Instagram. It's going to become a cool thing to wear a brace. Watch my, my TikTok video or whatever, <laughs> but it's exactly the opposite. That quiet withdrawn kid who maybe has a family that is a strict play by the rules kind of family and everything, they're going to be amazing. They're going to do it 18 hours a day. 
but that you know that party animal who is the star of the show and the and the fashion king or queen of their school they're they're not going to wear one and i was wrong about that i didn't get that yeah that's that, and when i was reading this i had the same thought initially and then as i thought about it more i can certainly you know we all kind of picture patients and i can certainly see what your results a lot of patients who fit very perfectly in those results but i oftentimes and maybe you guys do too is if I have a patient who seems like they're kind of the trendsetter and they're the, the popular type that I may question some of the kind of cosmetic appearance of the brace, I try to use that to my benefit and say, you know, this, this will be, you'll become, this will be you, right. This will be a big part of you and it'll become like a trendy thing. And, and I don't know, I have no clue if it works. I guess I should look back and, and try to stratify and see if those patients actually are compliant and, if that's any help, but I'm glad to hear that you guys all and everyone else kind of shook their head too. Cause I, I thought the same thing when I first read this, that I would have maybe predicted the opposite. It makes me wonder if there, there would be potentially a scientific way to choose who should get a nighttime brace and who should get a, a full-time brace, you know, yeah. those quote unquote cool kids are maybe just going to wear it at nighttime. Yeah. Uh, or say, we know you're not going to wear it to school. That's what 10 hours a day. So you're going to be a 14 hour a day brace wearer if you can pull that off. Now, the other thing I want to add is um, we're not done with this work. I think that VFF score uh, is going to be really valuable. I've kind of backed off on it for the last year or two because of the pandemic and kids being at home and stuff. I want to wait till we're kind of back to full speed, which we kind of are now, to test it more in a prospective way. We're also working with Penn professor Angela Duckworth, who wrote the book Grit. We're working with her on a grit score. Um, and actually, the data is favorable. It, but you need so many kids. It's going to take us several years. We actually submitted our first uh, piece of it to POSNA this year, but um, it's going to take us a while because you're going to need a bigger population. But there may be scores that we can use that help us. And I, my dream is a clinical tool. And I think Alex's work is uh, an incredibly good start. I was going to say, I love the direction you're taking it with looking at what interventions we can do if you identify that score. Like, does Josh's pep talk to the popular kids, then switch them from the bad brace wearers to being the good ones because they're going to own it. So Alex, I'm wondering if when you were kind of researching your discussion for this paper, if you ran across any intervention right now that you think has proven that we can take to our clinics to improve brace wear. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't recall coming across anything like that. To be honest, even kind of looking into the self-esteem stuff, I kind of had to leave leave the orthopedic literature behind. And so at least to kind of get to that question, nothing nothing too specific. But I think kind of similarly, that was kind of where my, my mind was going was, you know, can you identify which element it is? And then I think that's kind of step two. Like step one is finding something and validating something that works. And then step two would be doing some sort of target intervention and seeing if, if that actually works and seeing if it actually changed, changes their brace wear. It's kind of, you know, that two-step question. So I think there's certainly a lot more work. And, you know, as Dr. Flynn mentioned, you know, when you validate it, you may need to add in some other questions, kind of substitute things out depending upon the patient population or add in grit scores or kind of some other measure to make it even more predictive. But I think it's kind of hopefully a step in the right direction. Um, and I think it's something that could, you know, it just gets you thinking about some of those things that, you know, parents and families are thinking about. And it's really relevant to, you know, anything we do in orthopedics. You can, you know, apply versions of this to, you know, boots and bars for, you know, Ponsetti, or could you apply it to, you know, if a kid's going to do well with, you know, rehab after ACL reconstruction. So I think there's a lot of different avenues you can kind of tie it to, but it kind of just does the first part. And that second part still yet to be determined. Might have to start testing the parents for the boots and bar to see if it's going to work out. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, con congratulations, guys, on a uh, really innovative study. And I, for anyone else out there familiar with the landscape at University of Pennsylvania, I think it's just the perfect place to do it. There's so many innovative thinkers like Angela Duckworth and so much opportunity for collaboration. It's really awesome. So from here, I want to move into the next segment. Usually we do a segment called Stirring the Pot, where we talk about some controversies and then a lightning round. And I want to mix them together tonight because there's so many articles I want to get through. For the lightning round, it's all going to focus on recent stuff by Jack Flynn. He's one of the few authors in our field that just has so much stuff we can dedicate the whole segment to him. We're going to call it the Jumpin' Jack Flash instead of the lightning round tonight. And first up, JBJS, October 2022, Lengthening Behavior of Magnetically Controlled Growing Rods in Early Onset Scoliosis, a multi-center study. So this was one out of the Pediatric Spine Study Group. 
And the authors together, several of whom were from CHOP, basically found that there is lots of diminishing returns in magic rods. Depressingly, only about a fifth of patients get within 80% of the full lengthening of the rod. So, Dr. Flynn, I'd love to hear just sort of over the, the last five years or so, how your thinking and indications has changed for magic rods. Well, first of all, they should have never named them magic because that was a lot of hubris. And I think we all get that. I don't think anybody considered it a solution, you know, that was going to be the be all end all, but we certainly hoped it would save a lot of kid surgery. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of studies that have shown the complication rate is lower overall if you stop doing lengthenings every six months. I think the problem with magnetic, their power just fails, you know, as, as time goes on and the metallosis and stuff like that. So I think we have to think about magnetic magnetic lengthening rods as a shorter term solution. Let's not pop them in three-year-olds or something and know we're going to have to change. Uh, and that's what I felt this year at the Ichios in Rome in November is people are really pushing the first implant of anything later and later because the magic rods are not an instant solution. You know, so now can you get that, can you get that magnetic lengthening rod maybe in an eight-year-old and get three years out of it and then do a final fusion? But let's do everything possible to try to keep it out of the uh, five and four and five year old if you possibly can. And I, I'm 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 hearing more of my colleagues that are sending kids to school and metacasts to try to push the yep. initial implant of a magnetic lengthening rod back because they do steam stall out. It it is still the best thing we got to save kids repetitive operations and it does decrease complications, but it's sobering how you know they fail out. So next up, uh, JPO 2022, this one is called Best Practice Guidelines for Surgical Site Infection and High-Risk Pediatric Spine Surgery. This was a harm study group study. It offered a lot of recommendations. Dr. Flynn, I'm wondering if your involvement in this multi-center research has changed anything about your spine practice related to, uh, to infection prevention. So neuromusculars, um, I'm adding more uh, washout at the end. I really believe it's the end that counts. I think your patients accumulate bacteria as you operate. So it has increased the amount of washout I do at the end because that's the only thing I can control. I can't control some of their disease factors or other things. Um, for AIS, the high-risk patients, the obese patient, I do the same thing. I try to get plastic surgery to help closure on those kids in particular. But um, I, I think there's a lot of factors among those high-risk kids that we can't do a whole lot about. There, there was a lot of controversy as we were trying to decide, does everybody get a preoperative urinalysis? Stuff like that were, we, I tell you, we had, some, we had some Zoom calls that were very controversial as to whether stuff like that really makes a difference. So in the spirit of stirring the, the pot with controversies, do your patients get a UA? Uh, not necessarily, although I will say that I am not the highest volume CP spine surgeon. That's mostly Dr. Spiegel and Baldwin who run the CP clinic at CHOP. I, mm -hmm. I did that for 15 years, but uh, they took it over. So I honestly don't know if they do it, but I don't do it routinely unless the kids had a history of urinary tract infections. Cool. Do you set a, a three-minute timer for your prep to dry? Um, no, I just watch it until it's not glistening anymore. <laughs> the longest three minutes in the hospital. That sounds good to me. Well, the thing is, if you put a lot of prep there, three minutes is not enough. I mean, it's still a puddle. So I think it's more important. Is it dry or is it not dry? I, like I don't that. think the time is magic. All right. Next up, a similar study. This one's out of spine deformity. It's coming out this month and it's entitled Strategies Reducing Risk for Surgical Site Infection Following Pediatric Spinal Deformity Surgery. It's another multi-center study. Dr. Vitali was the senior author. And interestingly, the study showed that enrollment in QI programs was a very important factor for reducing infections. That seems very vague to me. And I was, I'd love to hear what you made of that. I think it just simply is you're, you're paying attention to it. It's just that there's, there's places that are very passionate about it. They have very good multidisciplinary cooperation with uh, anesthesia and infectious disease and others, um, and, they're, and they're doing QI projects, multi, and I think that they're paying attention to it. And, and places that are just kind of doing a lot of surgery and maybe not as involved have higher infection rates. Yeah. It's funny. It sounds very vague, but it's also very actionable. You know, anyone can start a QI, yep. QI project. So just some good old-fashioned Hawthorne effect. All right. Yep. Next up, JPO 2022 in the November slash December issue. This one's called A Modern Day Timeline for In-Hospital Monitoring in Perfused Pulseless Pediatric Supercondylar Humerus Fractures. 
So you guys found that 2.8% of supracondylar humerus fractures were in that perfused but pulseless category. And you basically looked at how long you kept them. The average length of stay was about 25 hours. And almost all of them were discharged within 36 hours. And in that follow-up period, there was no compartment syndrome, no new neuro issues developing, which seemed to suggest that, you know, 24 to 36 hours, you can feel pretty good that you've watched them enough and you can let them go after surgery. So I was wondering what your post-op process looks like for a, you know, let's say a, a pulseless but perfused type four supracondylar after you pin it. Um, I really think the important thing is even with the data from the study still supports the idea that if that kid with the pulse of supracondylar comes in Monday night and you fix it in the middle of the night, probably not a good idea to send them home Tuesday afternoon or Tuesday evening. You should probably keep them that next day. So even if you do the math, that's kind of how most of them turn out. I don't think that Monday kid has to stay till Thursday, but I think you really should observe them that extra day. One study I did a long time ago that's gotten quoted a lot was the delayed presentation of compartment syndrome in kids. There's something about whether it's um, the flexibility of the tissues or the perfusion, something. You just got to be really careful because they can still get a compartment syndrome, you know, 12 or 18 hours later. I just don't think you need to keep them like three days or something. Yeah, that's great. I think I need to take both of those papers up to the floor and show the nurses because it's always that day after when they're doing so well and they feel fine and you just get so many calls and need to really hold your ground and say, sorry, we're, we're going to watch a little bit longer. <clears throat> Dr. Flynn, a perfused pulseless hand, do you explore? No what's way. Your, what's your I, threshold? No, I, I reduce the fracture, uh, you know, make sure on x-ray I'm not seeing any gap or anything like that. Um, and then I step back and reassess for pulse, for perfusion, that that sort of thing. I don't open all those because I think a lot of times it's just vasospasm or something like that. And if you're patient, it'll quiet down. But I think you got to stay with it, keep that kid asleep, warm them up, all that kind of stuff. And then eventually you may have to open if you're not getting not getting it back. But I don't automatically open that kid. Great. All right, next up out of uh, spine. This is a uh, 2022 September, so a couple months ago. Preoperative MRI reliably predicts pedicle dimensions on intraoperative CT images in structural main thoracic curves in patients with AIS. So very, very cool idea. I love that you guys just looked at this. You know, I assume you had all the studies on hand. So really smart, smart research question. And the study basically showed that pre-op MRIs are reliable for measuring pedicle size. So uh, my first question, a little more stirring the, uh, the pot, do you get MRIs on all of your pre-op AIS patients? I do. And I do it because I probably do 100 posterior fusions a year. And two, three times a year, I see a perfectly healthy kid who ends up having a tethered spinal cord. And with Philly lawyers, you don't want to be that guy and say, what, you, how, you didn't get an MRI? Don't they have an MRI at your hospital? <laughs> um, I had the one that really struck me about two or three years ago. I had a high-level gymnast, perfectly normal exam, everything fine, MRI shows tethered spinal cord, goes to sleep, neuromonitoring shows significantly de decreased uh, motors to one calf muscle. And I'm like, how could we not pick this up? How did that, this not impact function? But it was a kid with a pretty bad uh, tethering. So I definitely get MRIs on every single kid. And I've actually found intra-abdominal tumors that needed surgery. So I think it is absolutely worth the cost, but I do it mostly for tethered spinal cords. So my MRIs were used. I think that was a Jason and Ari study. I, he used that because he wants to kind of see, could you use the MRI instead of a radiation tool? I mean, we're, we're coming to that in terms of preoperative planning and that sort of thing. So he wanted to see if that could be used uh, for prediction. And um, the way you presented that made it sound like it's something you guys are looking at in the future. So my next question was going to be, are you using that those MRI dimensions of the pedicles to, to you know, plan and pull the screws and have them ready during the case? Or, or is that still something in the works? I don't personally do it because I, I use I use navigation on every single one. So um, I go pedicle to pedicle. It doesn't really slow me down to be asking for a 6035 or something like that. Uh, but it's important to understand, I mean, to be able to get that information from an MRI is going to be useful in the future for uh, robotics and other things that we're going to do, I suspect. Perfect. All right. Another one, uh, same time frame, October of last year in JPO, early knee range motion following operative treatment for tibial tubercle avulsion fractures is safe. 
Um, so this is one we actually talked about at our journal club a month or two ago. And basically the conclusion was that it's okay to start range of motion early. The, you know, early was a very loose term because it just meant within four weeks. But there were a few more complications in the group that waited more than four weeks to start motion. So what, what's your current state of the art? How are you fixing your tub- tibial tubercle avulsion fractures? And let me let me back up. How much call are you taking? <laughs> Um, I'm taking a lot less call than I did even a few years ago. We opened a second hospital and I'm, and they don't have like, they don't do like level one trauma and I'm covering that hospital some, but I am not taking the every third or fourth night like I used to. So this is a study of Brendan Williams, my junior partner, sports partner. Um, and we actually started looking at this during the pandemic because when kids came back from the pandemic, we saw an yeah. explosion in tibial tubercle fractures, especially during basketball season 2021, et cetera. And so we were talking about tibial tubercle studies, and it was hard to kind of prove a sudden spike because of incidents and numbers and everything. But we started looking at this and said, well, let's start looking at seeing the different ways that people are immobilizing these. And we talk about this at our Wednesday morning conference a lot. So this wasn't as much about like, oh, their knee's going to be stiff for the rest of their life if we don't move them. It also was just about ease on the family and ease on the kid. If you don't have to put them in a cast like I used to do in the 90s uh, or even a brace now, if you can get them up and get them going with crutches, it is so much easier life after having your tubercle fix. And I think that was a big piece of it. Yeah, I think this is a great study, and I hope there's more coming that shows we could be moving them much earlier, even than that four-week yeah. cutoff. When you think about it, those kids, they're often athletes. Their bone is often hard as a rock. You often can get great fixation. I guess they could take a slip and fall, but the chances that they're going to re-rupture their tubercle by bending their knee, um, <laughs> I don't know. Think about what yeah. you're in the operating room after you fix it. It's pretty solid. So um, I think it's. I think it's. we're going to see a trend towards moving away from you know, immobilizing these as much in the first few weeks. All right. And with that, we're going to take a little break from the episode to hear from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by InView. We're going to be talking about their intra-op imaging system. It basically replaces fluoro. Uh, It also can replace CT or whatever 3D imaging you're using. And it also has navigation built into it. I'm joined by Dr. John Voorhees, who is a spine surgeon at Stanford and has been using the product. I understand you like it because it's fast and it is not very disruptive at all to the OR flow. You don't have to drape the patient. You don't have to spin the machine. So could you tell us a little bit about how the technology works and how it has helped you during surgery? Yeah, thanks, Carter. I've been using the InView for a while and found it really helpful for my patients in my spine practice. So it's a it's a new technology that allows uh, the machine to recreate a 3D CT-like image from a couple of different oblique shots that takes just a little bit longer than a regular fluoro would. So I've been able to work it into my practice and using just a little bit more time than I would for fluoro verification, I can get a lot more helpful information to help me put screws in more safely. And then we talked a little bit earlier, but uh, it sounds like it's particularly helpful for S2AI screws. Uh, can you tell us about how you've been using it there? Yeah, so um, S2AI screws, as we know, can be super challenging in uh, patients with deformed pelvi. And so this can allow you to really quickly get a 3D image that you can uh, manipulate um, and get your trajectories on, similar to navigation, but with a lot less time. Other things that I use it for in spine are uh, doing a, a prelim spin to help get my start points. And then because the radiation dose is so much lower than other 3D modalities, it's really helpful to do a post spin for verification. You don't feel guilty about extra radiation. And then I understand it has a cool feature where it can stitch images together, so you can basically replace your post-op imaging. Have you been doing that in the OR? Yeah, it can. That's another big radiation saver. You know, two-view flat plates to check uh, alignment um, are very costly in terms of uh, radiation and and sometimes time, too. So this device allows you to do stitching in 3D so you can check your sagittal and coronal alignment after you're done. Well, thank you, John. Uh, This is cool. If if you're listening, even if you don't do spine or use navigation, it's a very cool technology just to sort of keep abreast of what's coming out in the field. It's worth uh, looking over their website. I learned a lot just looking at it. And so let's get back to the show. Next up, JBJS, July of last year. This one's called Getting the Message, the Declining Trend in Opioid Prescribing for Minor Orthopedic Injuries in Children and Adults. And this was a large database study. And you guys basically looked at the rates of opioid prescription for non-op pediatric fractures and found that it was going down everywhere, especially in the north we- Northeast, going down a little more slowly in the South. 
Um, do you think the Northeast kids are tougher or do you think the Northeast doctors are meaner? What do you, what do you think? Um, I think, uh, it's, it's getting the message. Who got the message sooner? I really think that's, yeah. that's a big piece of it. This was a study. This is really the passion of our research manager, our PhD research manager, Divya Talwar. And we went all in on the opioid reduction, starting with our spine patients in 2014. And then we really started looking at the ridiculous amount of opioids that we were even prescribing around that time for kids with simple fractures. We have follow-up studies using a phone app showing how fast a supracondylar fracture gets off their opioids. It's like a few days. And we were writing these long prescriptions. Our nurse practitioners at discharge were writing them kind of thing. So this was just a wake-up call. I presented this at POSNA a few years ago. Um, and again, it's mostly the work of Divya Talwar and looking at this FIS database. But it really gave us some granular data about the demographics, the geographics, and stuff like that. And we just want to keep hitting this because most of these kids, honestly, are fine with Motrin and Tylenol very quickly. And uh, as I tell my spine patients, I tell the parents, you will never get a, a refill of an opioid prescription. You're done it in one week, and more teenagers die of opioids than spine surgery. Um, and uh, I, I really think that we as orthopedists are to blame for a lot of these problems, uh, especially in young adults. So we got we to gotta be super careful about our opioids. So let's stir the pot a little bit more. Some people would say there's no correct answer, but what is the correct answer for what to give a post-op AIS patient for their pain management? What's the what's the chop cocktail? Um, we have a we have five five drugs. We use Neurontin, we use Valium, we use Toradol, we use an opioid, and uh, then we dial all that down. And by day two, most of them are going home, and they're going home with a, uh, you know, an opioid prescription, but then they only get five days um, and they pretty much, they're on Tylenol and Motrin. That's surgery I do on Monday. By the end of the weekend, at the end of that week, they're off all narcotics. And my nurse practitioner is really strict about never giving a refill. If you have that much pain, you need to come see us. That's odd. That's great. That's our, that's our line. Is, uh, is methadone in the cocktail? That's one we sort of go back and forth on a lot. Yeah, it's not a, you know, not strict, but um, we're trying it. All right, next up, this was another spine deformity article, September 2022, complications following surgical treatment of AIS, and this was a 10-year prospective follow-up, and it was another harm study. I thought the most interesting thing in this study was looking at adding on, which is often a longer-term sort of complication, and about 11%, uh, there's about 11% rate, and it was one of the more common late findings. So preventing adding on is, is tough. We don't really know if we succeeded for years. We may never know in a lot of, a lot of patients if they don't come back. So at this point in your career, what, what are the most important things to you to prevent adding on? Let's say specifically well, proximally. Let's just let's just keep it simple. Let's just say radiographic. We're just talking about PJK, not even PJF, because no one wants to see a lot of PJK on the post-op films, even if the patient's asymptomatic. What what's your sort of philosophy for how to prevent PJK from developing? Well, I think the most important thing is you have to, you know, you'd have to analyze the sagittal plane very carefully and make sure you don't mess it up. And, you know, most of the PJK that really happens is when you overcorrect uh, Schuerman's kyphosis, especially if your upper instrumented vertebra is T4, you're going to get burned. You get too aggressive. But in scoliosis, I don't see that much. Adding on, really, I think part of this is just how we've moved as a spine community towards doing the shortest possible fusions and how aware we are of trying not to go to L4, um, how often we try to do aggressive selective thoracic fusions. I saw a kid today in the office who had a 51 degree lumbar curve that I did a selective thoracic fusion on. He's back four years after surgery and his curves 32, I think in the lumbar spine, um, worries me a little, but it's getting smaller than it was a couple of years ago. But I, I think that's that's part of where we are. We're trying to do short the shortest possible fusions. And often we get a little too gutsy and we stop at three when we should have gone to four and we find ourselves back a few years later needing to extend. I think you also got to pay attention to the sagittal plane when you do selective thoracic fusions because you can end at T12 and there's a local kyphosis there and find yourself with a real problem in a couple of years as well. So you got to make sure you look at both planes, all planes. And so follow up from uh, an article you published the year before, a JBJS review that was called Evidence Behind Upper Instrument of Vertebra Selection and AIS. 
This was another harm study group. And basically the conclusion, unfortunately, was that there's very limited evidence for how to select an upper instrumented vertebra. Yeah. So in your hands, what, what do you like to do? Or what, what, how do you like to train the fellows to select their upper instrumented vertebra? So for me, it's all about the T1 tilt. That's the actual scoliosis. That's the actual spine. You'll hear people say, well, if one shoulder's a little higher, you stop at T4. If the other shoulder's a little higher, you go to T2. You know what? I've seen kids stand in the in the pre-op x-ray machine um, with their shoulders at different places than it yeah. was on x-rays done a year or two ago. Definitely. So you got to be really careful because humans can put their shoulders in different places when their spine is somewhere else. So if I start to see significant T1 tilt, I'm going to go to T2. Um, and I'm going to use a temporary rod on the right side. I'm going to get that upper thoracic curve as straight as I possibly can before I put in my left rod and then go back and take out that temporary rod. But I want to push to try to improve that T1 tilt or at least not let it get any worse. That's where that's where I've been burned in the past um, is uh, is not instrumenting a curve with T1 tilt to the right of maybe 10 or 15 degrees. Great. And tell us rod make and diameter. Are you a 6.0 stiff rod guy? Um, no, I'm, uh, um, I used to use, um, the stainless steel rod, the, um, I don't want to use any brand names here, but now there is uh, an extremely strong cobalt chrome rod, which, uh, I'm very impressed with. Um, and that's, that's what I go with, but I've not been using six O rods. I use five, five. I used to use stainless steel, but I don't have to use that anymore. And when we put our heads together before the episode about those sort of controversial things we wanted to ask you about, we all came up with the same one. What are the correct indications for pontiosteotomies and AIS? That is a great uh, question. I think I think the best use of pontiosteotomies is for the uh, stiff lordotic thoracic curve. I also think there's some value at the thoracolumbar apex to do it so that you can get L3 completely level. I think one of the best uses of pontiosteotomies is to get the kid's thoracic spine out of lordosis. Uh, that's that's probably the best use. I don't use full pontiosteotomies unless curves are like bigger than 70 degrees and pretty stiff. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not one of these people who does pontiosteotomies on every single case. When you say you don't use full pontiosteotomies, are you doing something more than just a facetectomy? Um, and posterior resection remove basically I, I don't necessarily go um, I, I don't necessarily go in the canal on every single case uh, where I know some of my colleagues do that even on a 50 degree flexible curve they uh, they go in the canal and they take out the facets on both sides uh, I don't do that I've, I've actually found I mean you can correct most of these curves down to 15 or 20 degrees and I think that the added risk, et cetera, is just not worth um, a couple degrees on an x-ray that doesn't affect the kid's health. Yeah, well put, depending on who you ask, of course. Yes. Um, so um, that could be a whole more. podcast. I think it has. So Nice, nice teaser right there. We'll, we'll get into that. Um, how about the uh, correct screw density? Let's say you're just doing a standard selective thoracic fusion and it's, you know, T3 to T12 or something like that. I'm using uh, always uh, four screws at the bottom. Never, ever go short of that. Uh, then I have an apical cluster to do my apical derotation. And then I always have four at the top and I use hooks at the top. So a case like that, I might be able to skip the right T5 screw and uh, the maybe right T, well, probably if you're going to 12, probably none. If I were going to one, I could probably skip like, a, you know, 10 or 11. But uh, I'm, I'm not an every single pedicle person. I do skip a few, but I'm not really, really light where I'm putting in eight or 10 screws for something like that. Perfect. And Al Alex can vouch for me on this. He, we did an awful lot of spines together. <laughs> he's, he's holding me accountable. <laughs> Dr. Yeah. Flynn, I wanted to ask about um, your hooks at the top. Um, that's something that I was trained on quite a bit. But, you know, if I'm using NAV more often and you have the ability to put in screws, I find sometimes it's easier to direct my rods down. I'm wondering um, what value you see in the hooks at this point. Is it uh, softer landing? Is it um, just ease of placing them? What is it? It, it? Well, there's a couple things. I think the softer landing is really important for a lot of kids in terms of rebalancing and their comfort up at the top, just to have a little bit of flexibility and not ending on such a rigid upper instrumented vertebra close to their neck. I think that that's valuable. The second thing is a study we did uh, not too long ago, looking at the pedicle diameter, especially on the on the right side or the concave, those pedicles are tiny. 
And a lot of times I will actually use, if the pedicle is one millimeter at uh, T5 and I'm going to T4, I will use an upgoing hook at T5 uh, and make a claw there rather than do an in-out-in with the smallest screw they make, which sometimes can back out a little when you're putting that second rod in. So um, some of it has to do with the fact, again, that I navigate so I can see the pedicle length and diameter on every single case. And they can be pretty bad up there on the right side uh, at the top. All right. We, we will uh, restrain our, our tendencies to nerd out on spine and keep moving. Yeah, I was going to say, up. it makes me want to go do a spine case right now. I was going to ask, yeah, is sorry, that all we have for spiral into that a little too much. <laughs> Alex is bored. <laughs> all right. Uh, one for everyone. JPO 2022. Uh, this was the May-June issue. This one's called Better Patient Care Through Physician Extenders and Advanced Practice Providers. So this article gives lots of background info and shows really the value of APPs. What mistakes would you say you've seen in how APPs have been used? That came out of a pre-course that we did. That was a positive pre-course, that article. And I was asked actually to write about the, where, how you use scribes. But I think maybe the biggest mistake that people would do with APPs is they don't let them practice at the top of their license. They basically use them as scribes um, and they use them to fill out the medical record rather than actually practicing and teaching and all that sort of thing. They're very talented and very expensive people to be using as a scribe. All right. Next up, Journal of Clinical Medicine, 2022, March. This was a thoracic curve correction ratio, an objective measure to guide against overcorrection of a main thoracic curve in the setting of a structural proximal thoracic curve. This was another HARMS study group paper, um, and it suggested that for double thoracic curves, trying not to overcorrect the thoracic curve may help with, with shoulder balance. What, what's your approach to correcting these double thoracic curves? Are there any uh, sort of steps you take to maintain yeah, shoulder again, balance? Um, so, so what I do... Uh, after suppose I often do osteotomies up on those curves too, because they're very short and stiff, but then I'm going to put a right temporary rod in. I'm going to crank it with distraction and derotation as much as I can and try to get that proximal curve, which might be 45 or 50 degrees, try to get it down to 30 or something, which sometimes it's hard to get it less than that, maybe 25. And then I'm not going to correct my main thoracic curve down to 10 degrees, or they're going to be walking around the rest of their life with their shoulders up. So I try to balance the correction of that thoracic curve to be about the same as what I thought I got my proximal thoracic to. All right, here is another JPO one. This was the May May slash June issue last year. When is an isolated olecranon on fracture pathognomonic for OI? And in this study, you guys found that only about three and a half percent of the olecranon fractures had OI. OI patients were more likely to have a fracture with a low energy mechanism. Recurrent fractures are more likely to be displaced and need surgery. How do you decide? Is there anything you put your finger on other than gestalt? What, if someone needs to know why workup when you see an olecranon fracture? So this was one of those ones where I, I think it came up at conference or something like that. And we said, hey, we ought to have a look at this because we had a lot of these, uh, a lot of olecranon fractures, not necessarily OI ones. And it was this dogma that an isolated olecranon fracture is probably OI kind of thing. So we wanted to kind of look at it. I think if they have a history of other fractures, you got to really look closely. I think it's a very low energy mechanism. Like they just took a little tiny slip and fall and they snapped it off. Um, I think that you got to take a look at it. But I don't think, I think you just, you know, a lot of these are just, it happens by itself. It's not, uh, it's not OI and all those kids don't need to be worked up. So I thought this was a, uh, one of those little niche studies, but it went against some dogma that we hear about all the time. All right, here's another JPO, one from the month before last year, and it's called Unplanned Return to the Operating Room After Pediatric Diaphyseal Femoral Fractures. And you guys found about 5%. Uh, risk of going back to the OR for children under five, usually because of uh, they a spica problem, they need a new spica cast, and about 6% risk of children over five, usually because they're having some complication related to the flex nails. Now, I really wanted to just use this as a jumping off point, because the other thing I think we all agreed on is we wanted to pick your brain about femur fractures a little bit. You know, we're all familiar with your work popularizing uh, flex nails, and then also transitioning from double leg to single leg spicas. So my first question, is there anyone it needs a double leg spike up for a femur fracture these days. I think if you're going to, for for one reason or another, if you wanted to use it for an, a little bit older kid, you may be, but almost uh, pretty much every single kid that qualifies for a spike, I think these days, uh, a single leg spike is much more humane. All right. This one, this one's from Craig. What is the ideal treatment for a five-year-old with a transverse femur fracture? 
I would literally talk to the parents. I'd see, are we talking about a barely displaced crack in the bone in which you could say, look, I can put this in a cast. If you can, if you can stand it for six weeks, you know what? We're not going to have to go back and take implants out or anything. But most of those kids are going to get elastic nails and you're going to have to bill it to the family as a two-stage operation because we're going to come back and take these out you know, at some point in the future. So I think you just have to be upfront and present those options, but certainly a completely displaced or higher energy fracture is going to get elastic nails. How about if we bump them up to eight and a half and they've got a comminuted diaphyseal fracture? Is it um, elastic nails or are we venturing into plates or rigid nails? Um, I don't think I'd put a rigid nail in an eight-year-old. I think elastic nails is a pretty good option. Um, you could consider plating. Again, probably talking about two stages. Um, I'd almost have to see a picture to see how how comminuted you're talking about. But uh, I don't know, um, an eight-year-old with elastic nails and some uh, and a little bit of protection, you may be able to get a great result and uh, have a much easier hardware removal than taking out the plate and then putting them in a cast to protect their screw holes uh, for six weeks. And I think really we wanted to get at your uh, philosophy for rigid nails. So when, when do those come into play for you? They start to come in around 10. What do you think about all this fuss about functional bracing instead of spica casts? I think uh, Lindsay is onto something. I uh, honestly, we haven't tried it yet at our place, and we've got a, you know, we, we'd have to get uh, our prosthetics company going with it and everything. We have not yet tried it. Uh, maybe it's hotter in LA or something. I don't know. Um, but uh, their data is pretty compelling. And uh, I wonder if this is one of those studies that's going to start slowly triggering a practice change across the country. What do you guys think? I've started, I, I still worry, we talked about this a month or two ago, I still worry that it's not as rigid, obviously, as a cast, and I worry about pain control for the first week or two. But uh, it's easier for me, for sure. It's uh, And I, we've got an awesome, awesome orthotist who was excited to figure it out and came up with a great solution very quickly. I think once we get to a point where we can design a study around it to validate We'll probably be doing it just to kind of offload our OR volume a little bit because we're otherwise doing spikers in the OR. And it'd be nice to free up that time. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm still spike casting. I haven't been persuaded yet to to make the jump. Alex, yeah, um, I've still been you know spike casting. I don't think anyone at my institution has made the switch over. So in the future, I would be interested in trying it, but not yet. Alex, here's what I really want to know: Have you nailed? A rigid nail nine-year-old since you've been in practice on your own have you have you gone against the grain here i, I want to hear you contradict dr Flynn. <laughs> i have not i've done it i've done some flexing nails in younger kids but no no rigid nails in nine-year-olds <laughs> all right fair enough fair enough that is how you stir the he pot. doesn't want to get arrested <laughs> <laughs> all right um what about awake spica casts have you guys dipped your toes into those waters at all at, at chop or you know, sedated and in the ER rather than you mean like anesthesia. a four-year-old hold still. We're going to put you in a body cast. Maybe sedation in the ER, but yeah, um, they're all going not, to the OR. We have not been able to do it. Um, it has a lot to do with uh, cast tech availability and equipment and logistics. And but I'll tell you, um, never waste a crisis. And this bed crisis from all the viruses and stuff is waking up a whole bunch of people and we're starting pathways to send elective fractures home and be done later in the week and all this stuff. This may be a moment when we can say we can put this cast on in the uh, ED and save a hospital bed and OR time. So uh, we're definitely looking at trying to get more of that stuff out of the hospital. And speaking of which, that was my sort of awkward segue to your next study from Spine Deformity in 2020 called Awake Serial Body Casting for the Management of Infantile Idiopathic Scoliosis. Is general anesthesia necessary? And this was a PSSG study with Dr. Cahill as the senior author. And you guys basically found the curve correction was just as good for patients who were, were casted while they were, were awake. And so I was wondering, what is the current state of the art at CHOP for body casting for scoliosis? Uh, that was that was that really wasn't. I was on that study because I have other kids in that, but but I I I have not I've never done an awake made a cast. Anybody else uh, doing that? Keeping it traditional. Yeah. Sleep in the Yep. Yeah. I, I have not. And, you know, you hear the stories about the positive airway pressure and how high it gets, how tough it is to breathe. Yeah. And uh, I wonder how it's done awake. And I know that Dr. Cahill has done it, but I think about that every time I'm molding and their peak airway pressures are up at 30. 
Yeah. And uh, I'm just like, how does this work when they're awake? All right, we are getting close to the end. Of, this is one that I want both of your uh, your opinions on, though, from the Journal of Surgical Education in late 2020. And it was called, Do Year-Out Programs Make Medical Students More Competitive Candidates for Orthopedic Surgery Residencies? So as we alluded to before, CHOP has a very well-established program for, is it three medical students a year now do yep. the uh, research yes. year? Yep. And is it, is it Ben Fox? Is that, have I got the yes. eponym right? Okay. Yep, been going since 2007. This study showed that these programs continue to grow and basically... Lots of uh, the directors thought that they made a major difference. Much fewer residency directors thought that they made a major difference for choosing candidates. So, Alex, will you just tell us a little bit about sort of how your year was structured and that experience you had at CHOP? Yeah, so our year was basically structured. So it was just me uh, and one of the research fellows who actually coincidentally became uh, my clinical co-fellow and was also one of the authors on tonight's paper. Our year was basically structured so... We had uh, one or two days a week where we were in the clinic uh, working with Dr. Flynn, Dr. Ganley, Dr. Sankar, kind of having that opportunity for a clinical immersion, see the clinical side of orthopedics. A lot of our research studies were generated out of that time in clinic, for example, kind of the study that we talked about tonight. Uh, And so that was kind of one of the great advantages of that. And then the rest of the time was spent in research. And you had the opportunity to work with those three mentors or kind of anyone in the division. I think the other unique thing about the Ben Fox Fellowship is really, you know, kind of keeping with what is great about the clinical fellowship is also great about the research fellowship, which is, you know, the Ben Fox Fellows are kind of brought into the department. They're not viewed as kind of, you know, med students who do as much research in the year um, and move on. Uh, it's really, you know, the emphasis is on bringing them in, mentoring, teaching, um, kind of involving them in orthopedics and kind of jumpstarting their career. Uh, and so that was certainly what I experienced. I think you know, for me, I did the Ben Fox Fellowship because I was interested in ortho and I was particularly interested in peds ortho. And I really wanted to dig into that more and get to know everyone and kind of have that immersion experience. I didn't necessarily do it uh, to kind of strengthen my resume or, or get into residency. You know, I will also say, though, I've, I've kind of heard some relatively sobering numbers about the last year or two in, in residency and the number of applicants who are who are not matching. And so I think that certainly will probably moving forward play into, you know, how many people do it. But I don't, at least from my perspective, I don't think it necessarily makes for a stronger candidate. Um, it certainly teaches you some different research skills, but I think there are some research years and then there are other research years and kind of figuring out which ones kind of teach those skills and kind of turn you into kind of a better resident and a better physician and which ones are a little bit more just do some research and not as much development mentorship is kind of the next tough thing to kind of figure out because it's certainly becoming a popular thing to do. It is it is shocking how many applicants, you know, reviewing applications this year for for residency didn't match, took a year or two off. Our great candidates, all their letters say, I have no idea why he didn't match. And then in the meantime, they've gone and done something like this and published a boatload of really good papers. And it, it's amazing how I, I think it does. I, you know, I know this not what this study shows, but in, in my anecdotal experience, maybe it's with more people not matching really seems to be setting people apart doing experiences like this. I think it um, certainly gives you the opportunity to get to know more people in orthopedics. And so I think it can strengthen your interest in orthopedics and allow you to speak more to that in your personal statements and in your interviews. And it also gives you the opportunity to interact with established people in the field who can then speak to your qualities and kind of let let other you know reviewers know those those strong things about you. And so that's certainly an advantage. But Again, I think it kind of depends upon your program, because if you come from a program with a great group and you can kind of get to know them, then you can build those relationships over years. But certainly, you know, some students are not that fortunate and kind of come from home programs, which maybe don't have an established ortho residency or don't have mentors they can hook up with. They're just entered ortho late and they don't have those letters. So they could be a wonderful, fantastic person, but they just haven't gotten somebody from orthopedics to know them enough to say that about them. I just want to be really clear. Well, I'm in the process right now. We we have 36 applicants this year from 20 different medical schools. Um, and we're in the process of doing interviews for our Ben Fox fellows right now. We never pick people who are using us to try to get into residency. We're picking people that have everything. It looks like they're already going to match or maybe even have a choice of where they're going to match at, at the end of their third year. But wow, is this year different? There's no step one. 
And I don't know what's going to happen. For my three Ben Fox fellows last year, I had to write letters of recommendation for their away rotations. It is getting ridiculous. <laughs> Not for their residency, for their away rotations. So it is, we're moving into a whole new world with, without step one. We'll see. And so you already hinted at this, but my what I'd written down to ask you here is how do you recruit? You know, it relies on having great people doing the fellowship. And how do you recruit these people? Or maybe it's so competitive they just come to you and it makes it easy. A lot of it is we're we're just we're looking for people who we think are already going to get into orthopedics, but they're excited about a career like in academic orthopedics. We you know they want to really contribute to the field, and we've got to really see a track record of that and get a feeling for that when we interview them. That this is somebody who uh, they don't feel entitled to a place in residency, but it sure looks like they're going to get it, and they want to do something different. They want to add to the field and uh, that kind of thing. That's what we've been looking for. And then do you reach out to med schools or med student forums or anything, or do you just put it on your website and they find you? Website, and I think it must be in some chat rooms or something. That's from what I can tell. Alex has a better sense of that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's been so many years of success that I think it kind of speaks and recruits for itself. I think the thing that really sets it apart and really sets apart anybody that's trying to set one up is just the, the structure in terms of making it more about getting to know the person and mentoring that person and immersing them in orthopedics and teaching them skills to succeed in the future. And kind of that entire career mentorship and less about kind of come in and, and here's some research projects and do as much as you can for a year. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It sounds like a very intentionally designed educational process, not just looking for some research workhorses. Um, next up, JPO. This was actually an RCT, which is impressive in JPO. This one is called why irrigate for the same contamination rate? So about 18% of AIS patients have wounds that are culture positive at the end, regardless of the irrigation, whether it's iodine, saline, or nothing. So to sort of get back to what we hinted at before, Dr. Flynn, what is the correct irrigation process at the end of a scoliosis, uh, an AIS case? Uh, it's one that eliminates all bacteria. <laughs> Um, we're, we're doing, um, we're doing a, a liter of, uh, beta dine followed by a liter of saline for a typical kid for an obese or high risk kid. We may double that. We have a spine surgical site infection pathway that all the surgeons have to sign their name on the bottom of it. We just updated it this past summer based on, and we just look at the literature and we update it and people argue back and forth and then we just sign off on it. But that was one of the main things that everybody agreed on was bumping up our irrigation, given the fact that it doesn't cost much and it doesn't take much time, but it may make a difference. Can you confirm the method of irrigation? Are you just pouring the bucket in there real quick? Are you doing cysto tubing? Are you doing pulse? We have, we have, we have cysto tubing. And then I have a really tall cell saver guy who squeezes the bag and I call it pressure <laughs> irrigation. <laughs> He's an amazing member of our team. We call him the cell savior. Um, and he squeezes the bag. So we get uh, power irrigation when we think the risk is high. Is that in the protocol? Have a really uh, tall guy a, in the, uh... <laughs> it's a secret. <laughs> All right. And last up, JPO, mistakes made and lessons learned, a mid-career pediatric orthopedic surgeon's journey to sustain energy and avoid burnout. This was a very uh, nice article that I read before and enjoyed reading again, where you basically framed it as a retrospective review of your mistakes. For example, comparing yourself to others, thinking of your job as nine to five, but your career as nights and weekends. And there is so much good information in there. But if you had one or two sort of life lessons to offer to the four of us guys on this phone call, I'd love to pick your brain and get your advice. Well, that was that came out of the pre-course at the Charlotte Posna meeting, um, and uh, they asked me to write it up. They made me write it as a using a scientific format, so I had to have like an abstract. It was kind of ridiculous, but um, <laughs> anyway, um, it does it does highlight a bunch of the mistakes I made through a 25 year career with raising four kids and all this kind of stuff. And I would think you, you highlighted a couple of the main ones, but I also think things like owning your schedule, really taking ownership. I mean, have you guys? 
looked out 90 days right now to see what's going on in March and April to really see if you're going to take a vacation. That's where you really can make a difference in life by really looking at your schedule and not letting somebody else just kind of put a bunch of stuff in it. Um, and then you put your priorities in first and the other stuff will fill every moment around it. So there's a bunch of things in that paper that I really summarize. And I also give a lot of that information in a grand rounds I do all over the place called peak performance, managing your energy time and priorities. That's kind of like my main go-to for visiting professorship stuff. And it's it's that content about managing priorities and time and energy, which uh, is essential because this is a job. It's a most wonderful career in the world, but it'll grind you down if you let it, especially five to seven years in when you start to get really busy and family life gets interesting. That's when you go into that you bend in life and uh, you better have your act together. Well put. Well, that is all I've got. Anybody else have any closing thoughts, questions? compliments just uh we should re relabel this podcast as the golden hour because this has been uh very oh, very informative great. and much appreciated dr flynn also it does seem like a bit of a chop sponsored program so we will take those donations uh for the <laughs> for Pasta after the show thank you <laughs> i listen um i don't know if you ever go to the meeting i'm a very big Pasna donor because one of my themes in life is it's better to be generous while you're alive <laughs> nice great thought all right. Yeah, thank, well, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, uh, thank you very much. You all. all right. Good night, everybody.